Welcome to the TJF Podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in policing for a few years. This podcast is all about what it was like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. How did it change? And more importantly, how did it come to be in a bit of a mess? I'll describe every job that I did over those years. Reading from my book, I'll also give you my thoughts about contemporary policey stuff. I'll interview anyone brave enough to come on and ask them what they think. My wife Kay is going to help me from time to time. There may be a little bit of swearing, so probably better to keep the kids out of the room or use headphones. Everything I say and write comes out of a place of love for policing and police officers. But I know that some people probably won't agree with what I say, and that's completely okay. All I ask is that you read or listen with an open mind. And if you go away feeling that you know more about what policing in Britain is really all about, and perhaps also have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello everybody, nice to be back again. It's Ian here for episode three of the TJF podcast. Thanks for coming back and listening. I hope you're um, rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, um, getting some really great uh, reviews. So thanks ever so much for those who have done that. Um, so what have we got lined up this week? Right, so uh, in a bit, I'm going to be interviewing, doing my first interview, because I did say, didn't I, that I was going to be doing some interviews and I haven't actually done any yet. So um, I'm going to be as good as my word and wheel on my very first interviewee. Hopefully that's going to go okay. So I'm going to be interviewing an ex-colleague of mine, uh, Kerry Young. She was a uh, colleague in the Westminster Police. We used to work together in Coventry. I won't uh, say too much about that. I'll let her kind of introduce herself uh, later on. So we're going to we're going to do that. And I'm just going to touch on a few things that I've been thinking about in the last week. Uh, challenging myself and other people have been challenging me by sort of email and text and, and what have you. So I'm just going to cover sort of some of those issues first of all. So I suppose um, the first point I'm just going to make in terms of my challenging myself is I think I'm potentially falling into the trap. Um, I've probably fallen into the trap of doing to politicians in the media what I accuse them of doing to the police service, i.e. I have accused them of, uh, as a collective, of being extremely unprofessional, unfair, um, giving us a load of grief where we don't deserve it. And, and I think that's probably unfair of me to say that. So I just want to sort of make that really, really clear right now that I think it's wrong for me or for anybody else to tar, so that's my Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland accent, tar, tar, T-A-R, tar the entire media and all politicians with the same brush. There are lots and lots of fantastic constituency MPs out there doing some brilliant work, very much, um, you know, out of the limelight. Uh, very hard-working, uh, representing their constituents uh, and doing a very difficult and challenging and frequently antisocial job. Um, equally, there's lots of fantastic journalists across the different news media, again, doing a difficult and, and challenging job 
uh, and, and very often you know putting themselves at significant risk in order to do that. So I just want to make that clear that I, I don't want to fall into the trap that I accuse other people of doing. So just very briefly, what are the key points from the last week or so? So the Kill Bill demonstrations continued, uh, predictably expanding across the country. And uh, there was a big one in London on Saturday, just gone. Uh, over 100 people arrested for various offences. I'm not going to go back over that again. It's just, again, the analogy is like, you know, attacking the fish fishmonger's uh, shop when the price of haddock goes up. Uh, the police don't make the law, so, you know, do us a favour and uh, stop having a go at the police because we don't make the rules. So the other big story during the previous seven days is the conviction of a Metropolitan Police officer, Ben Hannam, who's a 22-year-old, um, for membership of a banned terrorist organisation, a neo-Nazi group. So there's probably a few things I would say about that. First one being absolutely horrified. Um, I and everyone I've spoken to absolutely horrified by that. Uh, 22-year-old, um, you know, how did he get into the organisation? What were the nature of the vetting checks carried out? Why why wasn't that picked up? Um, completely unacceptable. And I suppose all I would say is that um, if there's any positivity to be gained from that story, it's the fact that a investigation was carried out uh, fairly promptly. He was identified as part of that investigation, uh, and and he was arrested and and successfully convicted. So there's certainly no suggestion. I think it's fair to say that that you know he was in any any way encouraged within the organisation or protected or anything like that. I think this is just one of those horrible things that happens in any organisation uh, and it's particularly horrible when it happens in the police and it really just so couldn't have come at a worse time on the back of you know the Bristol disorder, the Clapham um, vigil that went kind of pear-shaped, the arrest and charge of a Metropolitan Police officer for the murder of Sarah Everard. Um, yeah it's just been absolutely horrible a few weeks for the for the organisation but you know, the truth of, of all of this is that this kind of stuff is, is just always going to happen, unfortunately, in every organisation. It just happens to be uh, the Metropolitan Police at the moment. And, you know, this is an organisation of 32,000 police officers. And, um, you know, there's been one or two attempts by uh, mischievous journalists. Sorry, I'm sounding as if I'm having a go at journalists again, aren't I? But, but there have been. There's been one or two attempts to sort of uh, infer that that he is just sort of the tip of the iceberg and all that sort of stuff. Well, that's just rubbish. Um, he, he's he's an, a horrible, nasty individual who, who, one way or the other, managed to infiltrate the police in the same way as from time to time we, we get individuals who are associated with serious and organised crime groups who manage to infiltrate the police. And, and we know that that happens. We know that there are crime groups out there who will... Um, encourage one of their own who hasn't actually got a criminal record so he's not going to come up in in sort of the vetting checks um to to get into the police and and to to work for them from within and we, we know that happens it's always happened and that's the whole purpose of having anti-corruption units 
to stop that from happening. But So it's probably just worth spending just a, a couple of minutes talking about the whole vetting process. Um, you know, what does that entail? Well, vetting is a, uh, a process that, that has different levels of thoroughness, I suppose, uh, depending on what the job people want to do. So at the very bare minimum, it will, it will involve, you know, checks on uh, police databases to see if someone's been uh, arrested or charged or convicted of, of any offences. Uh, and then depending on what the job someone is applying to do, then the, the level of vetting will become uh, very, very much more rigorous. And, and several times in, in my career, I've I've been vetted to the, the very highest levels of sort of for top secret, top secret um, material. And that's a process that's termed uh, DV, developed vetting. Um, and they really do go into your entire life with a very fine tooth comb and, and, and you have to submit yourself to very rigorous, um, you know, and quite intrusive uh, interviews delving into all sorts of stuff about, you know, your sexual proclivities and you have to disclose many, many, many years of financial records and all sorts of stuff. It's really very, very intrusive, but it's absolutely uh, necessary. But what I, what I would say, even about those very, very highest levels of vetting, is that uh, unless you're going to strap someone up to a lie detector machine, which we don't do in this country, it's very, very hard, really, to um, detect individuals who are lying. And, and, and really, you know, a good vetting officer will, will kind of, um, if they're unhappy about some of the answers, if they feel that people aren't being straight with them or there's inconsistencies in, in, in what they're saying about particular things that may affect their trustworthiness, then, then they won't pass that process. But I suppose the point is that, you know, how do people get into the police who are getting in there with sort of an ulterior motive? Well, they tell lies, basically. That's, as, that's really about the long and the short of it. So can we be ever 100% certain that, that someone isn't, um, you know, trying to pull wool over your eyes or it has got a sort of a secret life somewhere or secret sort of you know, sexual deviance uh, or whatever. No, you can't really. And and the the sort of basic truth of all of that is that if if we were, if we were to only ever recruit people into sensitive jobs who had literally lived the life of a saint, then the potential pool of people to recruit from would be extremely small. Yeah, my my ex colleague Tom, uh, I was chatting to him again uh, earlier today actually. And, um, you know, and he made a really good point on all of this stuff is that on one hand, we've got arguably the most benign police force in the world. And yet it seems that uh, it's just continually being criticised, um, particularly, you know, for things like being heavy handed and things like that. And you think, oh, really heavy handed? Oh, my God. You know, if you think we're heavy handed bloody hell, go and live in a country where the police are heavy-handed and you'll see that we're actually incredibly benign. You know, this is the thing, isn't it? You you look around other countries in the world and, okay, so you look at a, a country that might stereotypically be considered to be uh, a very benign sort of regime, such as a Scandinavian country, let's, let's say Sweden or Norway. But even the cops there, they're walking around with guns on their hips, you know? You don't see that in England. Um, so, you know, you ask yourself... Oh, 
hold on here, you know. <laughs> and I think, and Tom made a good point, he said that, is this a symptom, um, this is a bit of a philosophical question, I suppose, is this a symptom of extreme 21st century, first world luxury and ease in that the more comfortable people's lives become and so sort of absent from suffering, then that makes them more and more intolerant towards even the vaguest suggestion of authoritarianism. Anyway, uh, quite enough of my uh, mental meanderings. Time now to have our interview with the lovely Kerry Young. So, here we go. So listen, Kerry, um, thanks ever so much for coming along to be interviewed. Uh, first interviewee on the TJF podcast, so really excited about that. Thanks ever so much. So you don't want me to do a PowerPoint presentation in answer to all no. of the questions then? No, I don't think that's going to be necessary. And talk about a problem solution outcome? <laughs> no, that's very kind, but no. no. Oh, okay. <laughs> Damn it! I've got my flip charts around me. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so perhaps it's not a bad idea if you just sort of start by giving a bit of a general introduction, uh, you know, who you are, um, your background and uh, and whatnot, if that's okay. Okay, yeah, hi, thanks for having me, really uh, happy to be here and uh, nice to be the first one. Um, right, so I, my name's Kerry, um, I retired from West Midlands Police just over five years ago, uh, retired on medical grounds. I uh, won't go into that. Nobody needs to hear that. Um, I won't bring, bring my blister packs of um, tablets out for you. Um, so I joined the police in 1993 um, in um, Coventry um, onto the shift. Um, by 1996, I was pregnant. I definitely knew who the father was, so it was all good. Um, had a baby. So um, did you spend your entire career in Coventry then? Uh, no I didn't know um, I when I got promoted to inspector in I have written this down 2011 I went to Birmingham South over to Bourneville um, right, okay. and also worked at Harborn um, ah, yes, but that well. was the first time I'd actually left Coventry I'd obviously left Coventry for other reasons but work-wise yeah I did I did um, from 93 to 2011, 18 years there. Wow, 18 years. That's, uh, that's a long time to spend in one location. And that's where you and I sort of first uh, crossed paths, wasn't it, in Coventry? Yes, I think uh, I was just thinking about this earlier. When you were a sergeant on the shift at Chase Avenue and you left to go in the CID, I think I took your position. On C unit, is that right? Yes, that's that's right. I'd actually forgotten about that, um, which is a bit weird. Um, but yeah, that's absolutely right. So I went off to uh, become a DS on the CID in uh, in Coventry, and uh, and yeah, um, so you took over from from me. So Kerry, just um, give us a bit of uh, detail around the the various jobs you did and where you did them. And maybe just describe, uh, you know, what it was like to be in the police in Coventry, specifically. Well, in the 18 years, I was uh, initially on the shift. Then I did some neighbourhood policing. 
then I went into general CID as a DS for, um, no, sorry, as a DC initially. Um, then I went to child abuse investigation um, and then I took my science exams then and then I got promoted to the chase. Um, and then from there, I then went into the CID um, and then back into child abuse investigation unit because apparently we all tend to, when we start safeguarding, tend to, tend to drift back all the time. Um, and then um, was on the priorities team at the Chase. So it's a real cross-section. I worked at all three NICs in Coventry. So to talk about policing in general in Coventry is, is difficult. I think um, from yeah. the outset, um, it, it, is a tough, it was a tough mm. place to police. Yeah. But I think back in 93, policing was very, very different. Yeah, Wild West. Um, it was very, uh, there was loads of us. It was um, quite a good laugh. My dad hates it when I say that, still hates it now. You weren't there to have a good laugh, but we did. <laughs> so your dad was in the job? Um, yes, he was, yeah. He, he retired um, as a DCI in Coventry. He had been to other places. Um, but when he retired, he was a DCI in a little Park Street in 1995. Um, my mum was also in the police as well. Oh, wow, proper police um, family then. So, oh, yeah. So when I joined, he said to me, uh, right, a few rules. When you get there, sit down, shut up, make the tea, <laughs> speak when you're spoken to. Oh, God. When, yeah, when you get home, I don't need to hear all your war stories, especially not at six o'clock in the morning because I used to finish uh, nights then. And this is a professional police force. It's not Disneyland, right. so take it seriously. So... <laughs> This wasn't, he sounds like a right bundle of laughs. He actually is a good laugh. And, and, uh, and, and he said, I've got a lot of things tongue-in-cheek. But um, but he, I'd always say, to how did work go today? Don't need your stories, but how did it go? And I'd say, oh, that was a good laugh. Right. It, doesn't, it isn't supposed to be a good laugh. <laughs> but it was. And then, oh, that was flipping yeah, hilarious absolutely. a lot of the time. And I, I, didn't get, I didn't get promoted till 2004. So I was a PC for 11 years. Um, so right. whilst I did do child abuse investigation, that was all very serious, yeah, yeah, as you know. Yeah, not many bright um, points. Having done it yourself. It's a bit of a grim job sometimes, isn't it? No, apart from massive job satisfaction and and knowing that you have really genuinely, you know, we, we can all say in an interview, want to change lives, want to help people. Yeah. But actually, you do make a massive impact, yeah, as def- you know. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because um, on one hand, the stuff that you're dealing with is deadly serious. And um, yeah, there's nothing good about dealing with dead kids, is there? Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of managed to have a real laugh as well, which is kind of sounds a bit weird, but, but you know, exactly what I mean. Uh, the team are great, aren't they? And, you know, you have a very, very close uh, relationship with the people yes. that you're working with. So, listen, um, I mean, I know what it's like working in the police in, in Coventry, but um, just for the benefit of people listening, uh, just, just describe what it's like to police uh, a city like Coventry. Varied. Uh, scary. Um, I recently... Um, yeah, certainly when I was working, it was a pretty violent place. Well, I, I am a little defensive about Coventry, and I, I, I grew up there, I was born there, and actually... Um, it was still, you know, it, in terms of big, 
kickoffs, you know, big riots. There was a riot before I right. before I joined, um, but it wasn't anything like Toxteth. You know, no, it was no. on a small scale. When I say it was scary, I think as a I don't think it matters whether you're a male or a female, but I was a female, so I can only talk from my perspective. As a twenty, yeah, you are still oh, yeah. female. To oh, be well, fair. there has been some debate over the years, but I don't I want am. to be too too kind of binary. <laughs> but but you you are definitely still and or was a female. Absolutely, but from a female perspective, from my own perspective, I was twenty years old. I'd done a few jobs. I've been in and out of jobs. You know, yeah. I, I had my life experience was limited. Yeah, and like then a lot of us. I was in a police car with the sirens mm-hmm. on going to a burglary in progress so the burglary is happening now the people are on premises yeah and Kerry you go around the back hmm. oh okay um I found that really scary to be honest and with no protective equipment in those days did we yeah we had a stick and I had a handbag I had a plastic handbag genuinely yeah it was a, a very small stick <laughs> we got Absolutely, the females got half a half size uh, truncheon, <laughs> and we got a plastic handbag, which was probably twice the size of a truncheon. Absolutely oh hilarious. God. I don't know if we're supposed to. Yeah, it's pretty shameful when you think about yeah. it today. I don't know whether we were supposed to do some kind of Benny Hill skit and smack someone around the head with it, but we actually <laughs> did have a handbag. But yeah, we were we were we were ill prepared. Um, yes. We had radios. There was, as I said earlier, there was a lot of us, and it didn't take long mm. for people to get to you. That's right. But I felt quite vulnerable I think we and, all did um going to um domestic incidents yeah um they're the worst threatened to throw a hot boiling fat from a chip pan mm, that was charming. bubbling at me and I actually thought it was going to happen at, at that point yeah I've been spat at I've been headbutted I've been punched yeah um horrible isn't it? it I never got used to that no and never got used to that well you shouldn't get used to it there's no excuse for it is there uh, yeah, it, it it never ceases to amaze me, um, just how willing um, the yobs and um, in the London we used to call them scrotes. I know that's not a very nice word, but um, these are people who just have got complete and utter, um, you know, disregard for normal standards of behaviour. It never used to, you know, shock me, cease to shock me, just how willing they were to. F- very violently physically assault female police officers you know in in, when I was brought up it was absolutely beyond the pale to you know raise a hand to a woman at all yeah I think uh, I I remember hanging off um, a chap's arm once trying to put him into one of those arm locks we'd been uh, we've been taught to do which obviously never worked especially when I've got (laughs) little pipe cleaner arms like mine um and just thinking this is not happening I'm, yeah. I'm trying i couldn't even move his arm yeah um and so i think when you get into that one-on-one situation as you do when there's a a large scale disorder because yeah. someone's over here doing this and someone else over here doing that so you do end up on your own struggling with people yeah. um you feel the vulnerability of not having that physical strength um and i i certainly did but there are women that I know um, who are much stronger than some men as well. So I can only yeah. talk from, and you know, disclaimer for this chat is, I'm talking from my point of view. Yeah. I don't want women listening to this saying, well, don't put us all in. I absolutely don't put us all in the same mm-hmm. pot. I'm talking from my perspective. Yeah. And I wasn't physically strong. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've, I felt it was quite a scary job. And having spoken to 
two people have spoken to me recently about should I join the police? And there's lots of positive things I can say. Yeah. And I really had an amazing experience and mostly positive. But whatever you decide, however you decide to specialise, you are going to have to do those two years yeah. in a Nina, going to going to um, incidents and potentially fighting. Yeah. And and that yeah, and no getting away you're from either, it, there? you're either built for that or you're not. And I do think that's a bit of a shame because you then end up if you're not up for that you yeah. could you, and have some other great skills that can be used in the police then you know th then you're going to lose a certain skill set but it's it, it is a fact as it stands at the moment yeah it's an interesting debate isn't it and the, not everyone's cut out for it are they no yeah the, the reality is that um you've got to accept that if you join the police and particularly if you go and work somewhere fairly busy uh there are going to be quite a few times when you're going to be rolling around on the floor fighting someone who is trying to hurt you quite badly so um yes and this is where i know i've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about the getting rid of the height restriction uh for men um but uh, i used to find it incredibly reassuring if i was ending up having a, a very violent uh, scuffle with someone uh that w when the first car turned up to help you there'd be a couple of big tall burly strong blokes would get out of it uh, and 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 likewise if the car turned up and a couple of blokes got out of it who were sort of eight stone dripping wet that's that's not ideal um if i'm being completely honest of which there are many yeah yeah well it's it's a it's a fact of life isn't it um you know they, they there are a lot of very small people in the police now uh, compared to whenever i first joined and and they can't help being small, and I'm not against small people, but the reality is when you're doing a very physically demanding and sometimes violent and dangerous job, um, being small in stature is 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 a definite, definite disadvantage, I would suggest. And I know that there's a an ongoing debate, isn't it, at the moment about, you know, saying should we be bringing in people into the organisation who are um, probably not cut out for the, you know, the cut and thrust of, uh, physical um, confrontation on the street um, but who might have other skills that they can bring to bear so they, they might be fantastic cybercrime investigators for example um, or, or doing something else that doesn't require that sort of physical strength um, or, or physical presence so to speak. I think that's that's one of the problems because um, I don't think you're restricted just to cybercrime investigation because you're short. But I'm, I know that's no, what, not what you were saying. No, no I wasn't. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm, jo I'm joking. Uh, but, uh, but I do think that because there is such a diverse range of jobs that you can do within the yeah, police. Yeah, it's true. Um, I, I, you don't need the physical presence for a lot of them. I no. think the fact that you then have to do all of these um, confrontational roles, yeah. and we'll go up probably go on to talk about public order training because that was one of my nightmares um it, it does it does restrict who might want to join the police and we might we might yeah lose those skills Definitely. and i've repeated what i've just said but um but but you do need when you're doing those confrontational roles you do need a physical presence or yeah. at least a physical confidence yes that's right and it's something that i that i struggled with and i was quite happy to come away from those roles to be yeah. honest and i I wanted I, I, when I joined the police. I wanted to go into child abuse investigation, 
there's no personal reason for that I had an amazing upbringing um and just it was just something that I was um passionate about I felt like I, I I should do so I always had in my mind that, that I was going to go towards investigation. Yeah, and certainly there's there's a there's a debate taking place currently, isn't there, about saying, you know, should we be recruiting people to do a specific role? Um, is it necessary for people to spend those first, um, you know, two or three years out on the streets dealing with uh, the general public? Should we not just be putting them straight into roles that are more suitable to their maybe previous experience that they're bringing into the organization but uh, I've got to say that um, personally I, I wouldn't like to see that I think it's absolutely essential that you spend those first at least two or three years dealing with the general public because uh, that's where you do most of your learning really yeah um, and I think it would be very, very hard, I think, for someone to be an effective investigator in almost any type of role unless they'd sort of learned all of those skills, which is all about learning to communicate and learning how to get yourself out of trouble and understanding how the world works um, and all of that kind of stuff. And I do think as well that uh, one of the uh, great strengths of the British police is that they literally represent almost every um type of person in British society uh, and I know that there's a, a debate to be had about the underrepresentation of of people from BME communities in the police and that's that's an ongoing challenge and I feel confident that you know that's being taken very seriously now but what I, I don't think we would want if I'm honest is is to see every officer on the front line looking and sounding kind of similar in other words a, b- a bunch of um you know very sort of um, strapping, physically quite intimidating looking people and then to have, you know, a, a different type of person working in, in the sort of more um, sort of back office type functions. I, I just I think we just need to be, you know, completely representative of the British public. We are representative of society. I think there's several ways you could approach it, several permutations of what of what you just said that, that could be considered. but. There's one argument to say, okay, if you don't want to do that side of policing, there are many civilian roles that are investigative, safeguarding, et cetera, et cetera. You may not want to join the police as a police officer. Mm -hmm. Obviously, then you've got all the powers and things, the the complications with your your powers of arrest and powers of all those kind of things. Um, But I do, they are doing a detective academy. And I know um, somebody I know, their daughter has just joined as a graduate. Right into the i think whether it's called detective academy i don't know mm-hmm. she's going to be able to apply to be a detective after two years but she's still got to do those initial yeah. two years um in uniform yeah and there are many arguments to say of, of the skills that you develop in uniform not necessarily investigative but you know that you're uh, you're dealing with the public the way yeah, you communicating um, yeah communicate with people yes so it's really difficult to say but I I do think and I know that the police are looking at other ways of doing that um, Mm i.e creating these specialized roles that you can join pretty soon yeah so so one of the sort of my observations uh, because the police seem to be getting so much grief at the moment so much criticism from particularly from certain parts of the media is that um, a lot of the people I think who criticize the police uh, tend to have a fairly 
um, yeah. uh, I don't know, uh, lacking in diversity, really, in that they probably come from a very similar sort of background, tend to be predominantly university educated and, and educated in certain types of universities as well. So when they see something going on and, uh, you know, the stuff that the police deal with, they, they, they just don't really understand it because they've never worked in that world. No, uh, yeah. And certainly, you know, we're one of the only organisations really who who does see that life for many people in this country is incredibly hard and difficult. You do. And ha- having been brought up in sort of, um, uh, you know, probably classed as middle class background, yeah, if, if like, we're going like to put us, it into, into classes, I hadn't been to certain areas of Coventry. Yeah. I just hadn't. There hadn't been any reason for me to. Mm-hmm. And... I had quite a privileged upbringing comparatively. Yeah. And I, I think I needed to see how other people lived. Yeah. Um, and, you know, especially with when you're looking at child abuse investigation, et cetera, mm-hmm. if you suddenly went from middle class uh, suburbia yeah. into the, some of the, those reports and situations, you would just yeah. think yeah, you're be, in a different planet. You'd be horrified. So you, you do need to see, I think, how, how other people live. And also, talking about dealing dealing with confrontation you have to be able to deal with confrontation to deal with some yep. of your colleagues as well <laughs> yeah um, you know with whether you're on the shift etc so yeah. developing There's a lot that of strong characters aren't backbone uh, further is i think is is invaluable um sometimes my backbone wobbled on many occasions over over the years but yeah, uh, yeah i think did. if i was going to come down on one side i'd, I'd probably agree with you yeah i think it's um you know, I think a lot of people in the police, uh, having said that they're, you know, drawn from uh, every part of society, um, you know, there's quite a few people, myself included, who came from quite a comfortable middle class sort of background. And, you know, and certainly I was absolutely um, horrified, you know, when I joined the police and I sort of saw the way that an awful lot of people lived. Mm. And um, and that's not doesn't make them bad people. It's just that they're poor. You know, they're living in areas that are very, very deprived. And, um, you know, they have daily struggles uh, that that others just don't mm. kind of they can't even begin to understand, uh, particularly if you've got plenty of, of money and you live in a nice area and, you know, your kind of kids are kind of well fed and clothed and everything and then you come to all these other parts around the 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 the, uh, the country that are that couldn't be less like that you know they're just people are are living really 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 hard difficult lives and and often the situations that we have to deal with absolutely yeah are um are very chaotic and uh we have to make some very difficult decisions uh in in split seconds sometimes in a very very chaotic situation at maybe one or two o'clock in the morning and then of course then uh you know the uh, chattering classes will will pour over that and sort of sit in judgment on you maybe many months or years later and uh and and feel that they've got uh, the right to make a criticism of you absolutely i mean you go into a job for want of a better word yeah um and you don't know what you're going to get and that's that's one of the the benefits of being in the police that's it's, right the job's different every day etc yep. but you have to act on your instincts you have to draw on your experiences but most of the time yep. people do not want to fight yeah. i i have worked with many people over the years I saw probably right at the beginning of my career some people who were a little bit too eager to have a fight. Yeah. I never saw anybody uh, assaulted, no, um, you know, bullied, assaulted. It was a different time for me. And I think, you know, my dad was a DJ. 
you see I at the time so I may have seen people may have behaved differently around me but I always saw people being reasonable yeah um most people didn't want to fight most people wanted to to talk to people and talk them down and negotiate um and so I'm not surprised actually that that there aren't more of these massive incidents because most of the time you end up with a peaceful outcome yeah I totally agree um you know, I can honestly put my hand on my heart and say that in yeah. all those years of frontline uniform policing, um, I don't think I ever saw anyone um, doing anything that was, you know, gratuitously violent or done in a way that was, um, y- you know, an assault or anything like that. And there is this kind of myth, isn't there, out there that the police kind of beat people up in the cells or in the back of the police car. I think, you know what, it's just nonsense. I I worked in some of the busiest places in the country for many years at different ranks, and I never, ever saw it happen. And it just annoys me because I just think there is this kind of like urban myth, isn't there, that uh, the police, uh, you know, are going to beat you up, and it's just nonsense. Just going back to that kind of point about the chaos of life and um, how easy it is for people to sit in judgment over police officers you know you think about things like the Stephen Lawrence inquiry you think about things like Victoria Columbia um, uh, baby P all of these kind of very high profile issues where the police have been very very seriously criticized and dragged through um, the courts and through uh, public inquiries and and all of these things um, and I'm not going to you know make a comment on whether uh, the rights and the wrongs of any of those situations because I wasn't involved in any in any of those. They were all very high profile, weren't they? But the only thing that I'm really surprised about is that there aren't way, way, way more of those actually because, I mean, when I think about you know, when I was working as a child abuse, you know, DI in, in uh, Stetchford, which was incredibly busy, one of the busiest parts of the country. I think statistically we had more command and control logs a month and serious incidents a month than almost anywhere in the UK. I think there was only one or two other places, <coughs> excuse me, um, that had more in the country. I think somewhere like Hackney in London and maybe there was one or two other boroughs in London that had more, but but Stetchford was right up there, uh, you know, in the top sort of four or five in the UK in terms of busyness. And, um, you know, we had, the, we had the makings of dozens and dozens of Victoria Columbia's and baby P's uh, in 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 that place, uh, as as all those other busy parts of the country um, do, because it's very deprived. Uh, people are leading very chaotic lives. There's all sorts of um, vulnerabilities, and uh, yeah, and I think it's only sort of it's just, it's kind of a testament to the incredible professionalism of the police teams who work in those places, as well as the uh, fantastic partner agencies that we work with in social services and the the doctors and the paediatricians and all of these people who are literally struggling to try and kind of keep kids um, alive. I think the reason why we didn't have um, loads of baby P situations is because on the back of Victoria Columbia and and just in general, I think the police became much more professional as we went into the 2000s. We were much more accountable. We'd write down what we were doing, our rationale for doing it. There was more structure with the sergeant yeah. giving investigation plans and the, and the DI being involved. 
and I think you know we had we all had that in the back of our mind we all had yeah. Victoria Columbia in the back of our mind and we would end up having various heated debates with social care yeah. um, about right. um, action that they perhaps didn't want to take or they, yeah. they might allow things to go a step further than we would That's right. um, because we came from different angles but but I think that our action and our professionalism us and social care and yeah. other agencies involved prevented a lot of that it, you know it, yeah. it was judgment rather than luck That's right. um, but, but what it did do was it meant that we in the child abuse investigation units were, were running around with our arses on fire That's all right. the time. That's right. And and it was constant. Yeah. And you know, no, I don't think I certainly didn't realise the pressure that I was under until it took its toll. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of people who work still in that environment now always comment or often comment. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realise how much weight I had on my shoulders until I left the job That's or moved right. on or whatever. There is there is not that pressure, I don't think, in many of the departments because of yeah. that, what if I don't do this? That's right. What no, if I go not. home today and that child is hurt, etc. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think very, very, very professional department full of very, very professional and um, caring people. Yeah. But, my God, it took its toll. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I think back to the clinical supervision that my team and I had to have uh, every, I think it was 12 months or something like that. And um, it was always a bit of a joke, really, because the psychologist, the psychiatrist, whoever she was, um, would, would come into the team. You'd sort of set aside uh, appointments for sort of 45 minute appointments for every single member of the team. Um, so that was uh, all the child abuse investigators. Um, so I was also responsible for yeah. the sex offender managers who were managing, you know, it was probably a couple, of, at least a couple of hundred sex offenders just on our patch alone. Some of them were extremely dangerous, yeah. um, uh, as well as all of the other sort of vulnerabilities around domestic abuse and uh, high, high risk domestic abuse. So they'd have their clinical supervision. And at the end of that, uh, the yeah. psychiatrist would, would book uh, an hour or so with me as the boss. Yeah. And uh, we'd sit in my <laughs> office and she'd kind of give me the, the headlines, you know. And um, and it was always a, a bit of a joke, really, because she'd say, uh, your team are cracking up. Yeah, me they're, too. They're all cracking up. And I was like saying, no shit, Sherlock. Um, yeah, I know that. I'm the boss. I see it every day, and I've got people coming into my office and crying. Um, maybe not every day, but probably two, three times a week. Um, I've got at least somebody in my office yeah. crying. Um, uh, and she said, and the thing is, Ian, and I think you're probably slightly cracking up as well. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. Thanks for that. But the reality is, um, what are you going to do about it? What's the organisation going no. to do about it? Because these referrals aren't going to go away. Nobody else is going to pick them up and deal with them. Um, so unless you give me another like 10 officers or uh, reduce the number of referrals, then nothing's going to change. Um, so what, what's the answer to that question? And, and of course, there, there was never an answer to the question, was there? No, there wasn't. But I, I think in those departments and in other departments, we've been the victims of our own efficiency. As in, you know, if we say, well, what, what can we do about it? Well, we have to tell people. We have to formally... Yeah 
put in reports, go and see people say, you know, we've got a problem here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did just that when I was acting DI in Coventry. Mm. Um, and we were, we were just as you said, people crying in tears in, yeah. in the, in the department. And we were, we were going under. Yeah. And I went to my DCI. Oh, good luck with that. And said, this is, you know, this is the situation. And um, she negotiated an agreement with the CID that um, a certain uh, threshold would be yeah. dealt with them for a short amount of time because we were really understaffed, et cetera. Yeah. Boy, with the details. Uh, but the first, the first case I tried to um, pass over to them, the... Uh, yeah, the, the reality is that a lot of the protocols that the CID wouldn't have really understood about child abuse well it was you know, again it was an investigation they could have they could have done however right. uh, the di uh, within five minutes came back and literally threw the report in my face <laughs> across the desk surprise, with my face surprise. landed in my chest and said uh, you're taking the piss we're not dealing with this right and uh, when i tried to uh, reason with him or her because the names have been changed to protect the innocent yeah. um she just she, just she i think it's a her then isn't it just picked up the phone she she he just picked up the <laughs> yeah picked up the phone and uh, just pretended to make a phone call oh. and just did the little hands as in go away little girl oh god um so yeah that negotiation didn't last very long um but but yeah i mean i was very fortunate in stetchford because yeah. i had a, a fantastic um partner di simon simon viles um he's a fantastic brilliant detective fantastic manager and a fairly nice chap uh, into the bargain and he was incredibly supportive and you know when we were sinking he would uh, throw me a couple of dcs and uh, he'd say uh, be uh, take good care of them and can i have them back in a couple of days time if if you don't mind you know yeah <laughs> yeah we, we, we yeah it's, it's never easy it, asking it, for it help was, but it's um i wouldn't change anything about about the uh being involved in that I think I would just have tried to take things less personally and that's a theme that runs through my uh, my career to be honest I I took I was far too sensitive and took things too personally um and and that and that took its toll on me as well okay listen um uh, appreciate at the start you said you didn't particularly want to talk about the uh yeah the reason why you you left the police um, and you don't have to go into any like details. <coughs> Excuse me. Entirely up to you, but um, it's just curious as to you know what was the decision for you to leave the police after obviously such a long and uh, successful career, I suppose. Um, I ended up when I contracted two viruses. It transpired. I didn't know this at the time, um, but around about two thousand and eight, uh, when I was at um, when I was at DSNCAIU Child Abuse Investigation, yeah. I contracted a virus um oh. and um i never recovered from it so mm, i ended yeah. up getting what's called uh, post-viral fatigue syndrome which is me mm -hmm. most people know it um colloquially as me um yeah. post-viral fatigue syndrome means they know what caused it so there's two viruses that they identified that gave me me um the, the viruses that I got are lay dormant in all of us as it's right. been explained to me but if you become particularly vulnerable um, they can hit you and you end up getting um, Epstein-Barr virus, which is right. um, called uh, glandular fever here in Mono in, in America. Um, and some people never recover fully from it. So right. um, over the years... I so I don't know if you can answer this question 
Kerry, um, and I'm very mindful of not wanting to, like yeah. any good investigator, I don't want to ask you a, a leading question. Um, but to what extent, if at all, do you think that the stress and strain of the job that you were doing contributed to the onset of your illness? Uh, massively, massively. There was other stuff going on um, right. outside of the job. Um, but uh, when I got promoted to sergeant, it wasn't as I started off before we kind of segued into the child abuse stuff. Yeah. I, I, I went into child abuse and then um, took my exam. Right. And then when I got promoted to sergeant, any fun that I had stopped. Really? Um, and uh, and I think I... So why do you think that was? Well, two reasons. Uh, number one, I started take, taking myself uh, far too seriously. Um, and it, it right. coincided with having children, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, getting my own house, yep. Um, thinking, having antisocial behaviour outside of my own house, wondering why the police weren't doing something about it, then thinking, right, I'm a sergeant now, I really need to do something about this. Mm -hmm. Um, Having responsibility for other people. Um, Then at the same time, I think, and I'm really interested in what you think here, I think there was a big cultural shift in the police, in policing, when... Yeah, those 2000s. I'm talking about probably when you you were at, you first came to to Chase, so 2005, right. 2006. Yeah. Task now anybody who was in West Midlands Police will, and I've talked about this to many people, mm. will remember the invention of tasking. Oh, the joys. Uh, started off being called uh, daily prayers, ended up being called daily beating. <laughs> um, yes. Performance, performance indicators came in, and I think performance indicators were necessary. Yeah. I think there was a lot of us, not a lot of us, but a lot of police officers, and we were doing a lot of good work, yeah. but not necessarily couldn't really show it, all we? of us accountable for what we were doing. Yeah. Um, and I, I think performance indicators were a good thing to start off with, yeah. and have, have continued to be. But then what happened was we started having this daily meeting in the mornings mm. where a high-ranking officer would sit at the top of the table and say right yeah. this morning we've had 10 burglaries overnight two robberies uh so and so and so and so usually yep. talking about acquisitive crime mm-hmm. like theft-based crime and uh what are you sergeant young going to do about this yeah what are you sergeant donnelly going to do about this yeah, it was extremely intrusive wasn't it yeah it was. It was a fair enough question. I'm a sergeant. I've said to West Midlands Police, yeah. I can be accountable. I can supervise. I can mm. take responsibility. But what it became was a, a, a an open forum yeah. for people to be beaten up. Well, verbally and actually, you know, there, there were there were different levels of it, as we all know. But yeah. <laughs> there were certain officers. I've no uh, idea who you could be talking about. Seem to take some pleasure in humiliating you, mm. catching you out, knowing the answer to the question that they asked you. Yeah. Before oh, yeah. they asked you. Yeah, I remember that really, really well. You know, it was, it was certain managers used to come into work probably two hours before the start of that meeting Absolutely. and spend two hours preparing and going through every single crime and then deliberately asking um, individuals in that meeting questions that they clearly already knew the answers to so everyone then that sent out a message saying you've got to also come in 
yeah. you know, like two hours before the meeting even starts just to make sure you don't get caught out in that sort of horrible way yeah. and get humiliated. And in many cases, sorry, go on. And I can, I can, I can remember, you know, people coming into that meeting literally, yes. you know, sweating, uh, worrying about, you know, when the, you know, and you saw someone else getting kind of verbally beaten up. Yeah. You, you would just think, oh, thank God it's not me. You know, uh, somebody else is getting beaten yeah. up. So, uh, so yeah, not good at all. Yeah, and I likened it to when the superintendent walked in in the morning when the door opened. Oh, I don't know I who you could be talking about there. Walking into the Death Star <laughs> control room and feeling the the death grip oh, on your yeah. neck when it's your turn. Yeah. And you know, we're, whilst yeah, I, yeah, I know who you're talking about there. Yeah, and he and he and he does too. Because uh, I gave him some, I gave him some constructive feedback one day after a couple of beers, and uh, he'll never let me forget yeah. it. Yeah, little um, truth drug. And it, I'm not saying that 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 particular person behaves mm. in a certain way. It's just at that time, yeah, that oh, was the person. Was that everywhere. was the person who who was in charge. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, every single um, you know command unit that's what I was about in, to say. in in the force was was behaving in the same way, and yeah, and that's sort of very intrusive, yeah. and and which kind of strayed into bullying in many ways. That sort of sort of that sort of mentality was positively encouraged, yeah, wasn't it? And um, yeah, so so all of that stuff, and I write about this in the, my book. This this was this was um, all, all part and parcel of kind of the new labour obsession with measuring absolutely everything you know and uh, the comedian Alfie Moore um, tells a funny story when he when he does his uh, after dinner speaking there's one uh, great clip on YouTube you can have a look at it where he tells this story from that time of you know when 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 police um, uh, police officers and organizations nationally were doing absolutely everything they possibly could to try and explain away crime um, so that it didn't get measured because um, one of their performance indicators was around reducing crime. So if you could kind of explain it away, then um, then you didn't, uh, you know, you'd hit your targets, wouldn't you? And, um, and he tells this really funny story of, of uh, which is obviously for dramatic effect, but, but so true because this kind of stuff was actually kind of going on. Where, where someone goes around to report a, a burglary and the, the back door or the patio doors have been kind of jammied open, you know, and there's tool marks <laughs> on the door and, the, yeah. you know, all sorts of things missing from the house and it's very clearly a burglary. But he, um, uh, the officer who t- attends says, oh, no, 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 that's, uh, that's badgers, that is. And uh, the homeowner says, what do you mean badgers? He said, they've stolen my 42-inch plasma TV. And uh, and they say uh, and he says um, oh yeah well that, that means uh, there must have been uh, two of them wasn't there <laughs> at the same time we were recording more crime than we ever ever did right. as in um, if there was a suggestion so if somebody called the police and there was a say a suggestion that there had been a crime it would automatically be classed as a crime that's right and then there became this this process of let's try and prove Des- it's not. Let's try and uh, disprove yeah, it. Yeah, and, and it all became rather tiring. And like you say, it, it, it bred this culture of competitiveness between um, especially sergeants, inspectors, you know, yeah. any, any supervisors. Definitely. Backstabbing, people trying yeah. to make themselves look yeah, better. Was, oh, no, it wasn't me. It yeah, wasn't it was my horrible. department. That's, that's down to the CID. That's down to so-and-so. You know, yeah. can't so-and-so deal with that? Yeah, definitely. And certainly where I worked at the time, and... 
I absolutely accept that I became annoying. Uh, I, now, I, I, I was obsessed with the job. Um, I was took myself far too seriously. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly my memories of you um, at Coventry in those days was that you were uh, a pretty feisty sort of <laughs> character. Um, you know, very nice. Yeah. But feisty and certainly not a pushover. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, you had to be feisty, didn't you? Really, I suppose. I have, but but I was feisty amongst many other feisty people. Yeah. Um, you know, and and it became, um, it became a bit of a nest of vipers. Yeah. And um, one thing I I was I was feisty. I was um, annoyingly obsessed with the job. Yeah. But I was never a bitch. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, I agree. And. Yeah, and and, and there, there was a lot that went on at the time that there was really affected quite a few me. unpleasant um, people, and around. really, um, I was too sensitive to deal with. But you know, if I'd have just piped down or chilled my beans or whatever, yeah, I, I, I probably wouldn't have, have had to deal with that. And then at the same time, I had a very young child, um, and I remember being in the CID, yeah. dealing with some amazing cases, having some really great results. But I distinctly remember one day being on the phone whilst trying to decorate a Christmas tree with my little girl. You know, mm-hmm. look at this lovely idyllic situation. I've got the firearms commander on one on mm-hmm. one phone and the chief superintendent on the other phone. Um, and she said, "Where shall I put this reindeer, mummy?" It's like, rah, rah, rah. and yeah. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget realizing, well, not realizing, looking back at the time. And I'm actually just this Christmas. Um, just gone my, my son's 25 now um, and you know this is a whole other thing so mm. it's going to become a counselling session for me but I actually apologised to him this Christmas for being no. such a crap mum oh god why did I talk about that it's alright we've all been there um, yeah I mean uh, firstly you know a crap mum because I know you um, pretty well and you're a brilliant mum and you always have been a brilliant mum but this is the thing isn't it you're in the police uh, it's not a 9 to 5 job uh, you're dealing with um, really difficult um, stuff. Uh, people, you're dealing with people's lives, aren't you? So you can't just walk away from it and go right. That's I'm clocking off for the day and I, or or I'm not available. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it is a really deadly serious job, and mm-hmm. um, and I've lost kind of the the number of nativity plays or school assemblies or prize givings or whatever all the significant family events that I've missed. And um, yeah. So so yeah, don't beat yourself up. No, and I. I... I do realise that, and, and actually, I think my my daughter, who's now seventeen, got that balance. And actually, me, me becoming ill and not being able mm. to do the job anymore uh, meant she was t- she was ten when all that started. Right. Um, it, it happened at the right time for her yeah. because she ended up with a proper mum. And so there is there is a, there is a proper silver lining. I can't. I do some work now, but I I can't work anywhere near. I can anywhere near full time and I have to have big breaks and my Emmy really impacts me but she now has she now has a proper mum and and also she's she knows what I achieved so she's she's also proud of me as well so Mm. we've got a good balance there and again I wouldn't change anything other than I shouldn't have taken everything so flipping seriously taking myself so seriously um and I shouldn't have taken well you know I just don't like I say go back to my previous point I just think it's a very demanding job, isn't it? And um, 
you know, I certainly can think of many times whenever I was very, as we say, job pissed, um, you know, particularly when I was working in London, I was working in counterterrorism operations and mm-hmm. I was away from home for long, long periods of time. I was at work for long periods of time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was really enjoying my work and everything, but it was uh, full on. And, um, you know, the job does, uh, it'll, it'll keep taking, won't it? It'll keep taking as long as you're <laughs> prepared to keep giving. And, um, you know, there's certain individuals who are always the, the kind of go-to people, aren't there? And um, they're always going to be the first ones to be asked to kind of do stuff. But, um, you know, that comes at a cost. And, you know, there are, uh, as you know, of, um, divorces and separations and all sorts of stuff like that in the police um, for kind of very good reason, I suppose. The thing is, I mean, now that I'm working in business, you know, I see a lot of this uh, in business as well, I, I see a lot of people who are burnt out. I see a lot of people who are putting their jobs before their families and their friendships and their health. And uh, so it's not just the police. I think, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of this kind of stuff, unfortunately, going on. Um, and fee- people do find it hard to say no sometimes. And employers uh, will just keep on loading on the pressure, won't they? Yeah, well, I, uh, I obviously grew up in, with a policing family, but my sister's got her own business and um and I and I see how especially in, in with because it's travel related um how under threat her whole livelihood has been throughout this this um yeah pandemic oh, and definitely, also yeah. um you know ev- most of our friends uh, are not in the police I've got to say yeah. that they they would they would express you know I don't know how how you do what you do they they actually understand what we do a lot better than yeah. we understand some of their roles. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I, I completely agree with you that, um, you know, in the police, you have to do something wrong to get sacked, really, <laughs> something quite wrong. You know, you... Yeah, and, and that's something that I've, you know, find very sort of frustrating, you know, just how difficult it is to get rid of, um, you know, lazy or incompetent people from the police and, Whilst there's no one who's a greater cheerleader for the police than, than I am, um, you know, as a police manager for, for many years, um, I used to get incredibly frustrated um, just at how difficult and bureaucratic the processes for getting rid of people were uh, to the point where they just kind of give up, you know. And, and then yet you contrast that, you know, how difficult it is to get rid of people from the police. You contrast that with... The fact that they brought in these new regulations under Tom Windsor and Theresa May, that um, if you get shot or stabbed or diagnosed with cancer, you go on to half pay after six months, even if you're like the most amazing, fantastic professional police officer in the world. Uh, and that, that can't be right. And that on one hand, you, you, you find it almost impossible to get rid of lazy and incompetent people. And yet people who are fantastic and who get shot in the line of duty, go on to half pay after six months and no pay after 12 months. No, absolutely. I mean, I can't, I can't comment on how, because I've been gone five years, um, but I, I, I do know it still must, must be very difficult to get rid of people. So I, I completely agree. Once you then come out of the police, you realise, um, and as you said in your five I can't remember what the five points about what, you know, when you, when you yeah. come out of the police and start your own life. That's right. The world moves on without you. Policing does move on without you. And then it's up to you to then seek your own fortune and make your own luck. Yeah. And then you start to you do start to realise how the other half lives sometimes. That's right. Yeah. It's, it comes as a bit of an, an eye opener, doesn't it, really? Because we, we kind of um, yeah. 
we kind of live in this little police bubble, don't we? We think that uh, the world starts and ends uh, with the police. And actually, you know, whilst the police is an important organisation, there's a lot more to the world than just policing, isn't there? So, yeah. So, um, question for me then. Do you miss it at all? <laughs> no, I don't. I what, I what I do, what I do do um, is mm. I when I look at th- other things that I could do if I was well, yeah. I I always gravitate back to safeguarding, um, investigation. Yeah. I I miss, you know, there was jobs I was involved in where I remember going on telly with mm. speaking to Donald McIntyre because we'd had some armed robberies across Coventry and Warwickshire and yeah. we had a load of um, images and what they're wearing and weapons, etc. And that that then uh, we got some intelligence people phoned in with some names and we did right. a covert operation and it, it meant this job. almost never happens but on the first day the people we were surveilling actually did a job i could like <laughs> it only it happens on the telly doesn't it, it? All very sexy but they didn't do an armed robbery however they did commit a crime using and they had a they had a gun with them right good um and it was brilliant and we did a hard stop on them and then we had this great investigation, loads of... So just for those who don't understand Sorry, what a hard yeah. stop is, um, that's when the firearms teams kind of um, pull someone out of a car at gunpoint and sort of, you know, sometimes ram them off the road. So, yeah, that's a hard stop, isn't it? Yeah, with guns. Yeah, probably the only thing that... I won't, I won't start you on line of duty because I don't want you to go off on one, but probably, <laughs> the, only, probably the only likeness to line of duty. But, yeah, then, then the after investigation, and we ended up doing like a... Dragon's Den presentation to the Crown Prosecution Service of all the images that we had of them and how they matched with the crimes. And yeah. I loved it. I've got goose pimples now talking about it. Loved mm. it. Love all that kind of thing. But I know my, my health can't take yeah. being a police officer. Um, and I wouldn't be able to take the stress these days. And I don't think I'd want to either. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, no, I don't miss it. Um, but um, I... If if I was to finish this on a whether my memories of the police are good or bad and how I feel about it, I would still say to my my daughter wants to join the RAF and is then Mm. thinking after you know many years in the RAF she'd like to join the police. I absolutely encourage her. Yeah, yeah. Because that it's a brilliant job. It's varied. It's interesting. It's different every day. I agree. the experience is amazing. The job were really good to me, really good to me when I got poorly. Good. When I became poorly, um, I can't fault them. You know, the, chief, the now chief constable was was really kind personally, um, spoke to That's me nice. and made sure I was okay. Can't fault them. Um, Brilliant. But uh, it is very hard job, yeah, very tough is. job. Yeah. And scary and stressful at times. Yeah, and very that, much you so. know, that that's my that's how I can my, my impression and what I came away with. Um, but mm. I wouldn't change it for the world. No, no, nor would I. Nor would I. Um, you know, there was there was times when I uh you know, lot thought long and hard about um jacking it in, you know, at various points in my career I was really stressed out or fed up or or um disillusioned or whatever, you know. Yeah, and and that often happens at sort of the halfway point. Sometimes in people's careers, you know, when they sort of think, "Oh God," you know, you think, "Fuck this for a game of soldiers," you know. Um, but then there's other times, you know, when yeah. when you you think, "Oh God, this is like the the absolute best job in the world," isn't it? Is. it? So so yeah, it's uh, it's it's really really tricky, isn't it? Listen, Kerry, um, we've been talking for uh, nearly an hour now, so uh, this has been absolutely fantastic. I've I've loved every minute of it. It's been brilliant. 
Uh, thanks ever so much for taking the time and the trouble to speak to me. Um, I think, you know, I've really enjoyed the interview and I hope everybody else who does listen to this will, will also enjoy it. I'm sure they will. So thanks a lot and leave it with you. Brilliant. Lovely to speak to you. And to you. Um, say hi to uh, that ridiculous uh, husband of yours as well. OK, thanks, you. Bye. So there you go, folks. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. I, I certainly did. Um, you know, it was lovely kind of reminiscing. Um, Carrie's brilliant. Uh, my memories of her were super professional, very, very dedicated. And uh, yeah, I think you could hear for yourself there that um, sometimes uh, that extreme levels of dedication in the job come at a cost sometimes to people's physical and, um, you know, often their mental health as well. So listen, I'm going to leave it with you now. Um, thanks ever so much for listening and uh, look forward to um, the next time that we spend a bit of time together and I uh, hope you have a good week and uh, all right, see you later. Bye. He was often in our street We used to smile and wave at him While walking on his beat But now we never see him It really makes us frown No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town Oh